0: Welcome to another episode of Strictly Business, the podcast where we talk with some of the brightest minds working in media today. I'm Andrew Wallenstein with Variety. The $2.7 billion sale last week of Meredith Corporation's top shelf magazines like People and Entertainment Weekly was a reminder that for all its struggles, there's still a lot of life left in the publishing business. You don't need to tell our next guest that. Pam Drucker-Mann is Chief Revenue Officer of Condé Nast, where she oversees the global advertising business for blue-chip brands like Vanity Fair, Vogue, and The New Yorker. We talked about everything going on at the company, from how it plans to build on its live-stream business after its success at the Met Gala in September, to e-commerce, paywalls, and a whole lot more,
1: so stick around.
0: Welcome back to Strictly Business, where we're talking with Pam Drucker Mann, Chief Revenue Officer at Condé Nast, where she oversees the global advertising business. Thanks for joining me today, Pam. Thanks for having me. As the U.S. economy continues to shake off the effects of COVID, we're seeing a big rebound in ad spend. Though how much publishing is participating in that? That's something I want to get your perspective on. There was a recent forecast from ad buying giant Magna estimating the newspaper and magazine business was flat in the first half of the year versus obviously a very banged up 2020. So how has Condé Nast been doing? How has its 2021 been shaping up compared to 2020?
3: Yeah, I mean, we're having a great year, um, which is not something we anticipated in 2020. Um, all of us were kind of sitting at home in in our holes uh, and trying to think about, I remember doing the forecasting for 2021, uh, you know, and I was like, I don't even know what's happening like next week. Um, really hard to kind of guess what next year is going to look like. And it's interesting, even at that time. You know, all the futurist conversations or the magnas or the e marketers that were trying to make estimates, that's like no one had any clue what was really going on. Right. Um, but I will say that we've been pleasantly surprised. We're experiencing double digit growth this year, which is not something we anticipated. Um, and when, what do you
0: attribute that to? What's going on that's driving this unexpected growth?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things. I don't think anyone realized that the economy would rebound as quickly as it did. So like consumers are spending, they're out of their houses. So let's just be honest, like that was a a big indicator to marketers that was time to get back out there um, and start engaging with them in in the ways that they had, but also in new ways, obviously with the growth of e-commerce. And then I would say from our perspective or from, you know, from where we sit, you know, we had one of the biggest silver linings for us in 2020 was just unbelievable audience attention um, in terms of our content. So we experienced a lot of audience growth and we've been able to capitalize on that with advertisers this year. We've never had, I mean, it's, it's incredible the amount of inbound that we have um, in terms of, you know audience, in terms of growth, in terms of engagement in terms of purchase. I think all of that is lining up well for advertisers. And then I'd say the third reason for whatever it's worth is this really big industry shift around um, privacy. And, you know, audience targeting and, and some of the challenges for marketers in a, in a cookie list world um, and the role that we play as, you know, a contextual partner. So I'd say those are the three, uh, you know, probably main factors right now.
0: And I'm curious how big a driver the digital ad piece of this is. I mean, the central challenge of a business like yourself is that print core business or yeah. maybe was core business for so long, you've got to move past that. So how are you doing on that end?
3: I mean, that's our entire story. I mean, we've just had an unbelievable acceleration. Let's start with the, the focus in terms of innovation on our content on these new platform we now produce content on 80 platforms worldwide. Um, We've crossed that threshold now in which, you know, uh, almost three quarter of our revenue is digital versus print. When you have less print headwinds at your face, it makes it a lot easier to be successful. So um, yeah, I mean, we're having an amazing, I would say moment in time in terms of like this acceleration of digital content in terms of our influence in front of consumers and I know You and I have talked about uh, some of the success we've had even in some of these new places like live format um, for us in which, correct, in which we're engaging with consumers in new new ways, that just gives us so many new ways to engage with advertisers. It just gives us so much more range. So the more innovative we are around digital content, digital content strategies, the more range we have to provide to advertisers. And
0: it's been a tremendous year. So what was this, wh- how big a breakthrough was the live stream you did with Vogue at the Met Gala? I've seen the numbers, you know, yeah. astonishing number of live streams. Um, what was, but you've been at the Met Gala before. What was different this year? Why was it a breakthrough?
3: Well, I mean, I think first of all, um, people were excited that the Met was back. And so I think you definitely have this like FOMO moment for consumers of like, wow, like, you know. I think all of last year, there was no live experiences or, or very few, if you will. Um, the Met has been gaining traction for the, for the past few years. Um, and, you know, we kind of, we took a test, uh, you know, one of the other great things about 2020 was just to have more time to really focus on our direct-to-consumer strategy. And just to think about, you know, our own, you know, our own IP and how, and when we want to, um, how we want to connect with our consumer in these new places, and as it turns out, you know, for all the years that we've, you know, been partnering with the Met, um, we never owned any of the content um, in terms of the live format. And this was a year in which we were like, no, if this is the Vogue Met Gala, we want to own, we want to own the format, we want to own the relationship between the consumer. And, um, you know, there was this was definitely a risk because, you know, we're, we're not a broadcast company. Um, but in a way, that was a great thing because we were able to take a totally new and fresh approach to just a live experience in and of itself. Um, and we, you know, created almost like, um, you know, the Met itself is exclusive, but we wanted to give our, our audience, um, you know, a real a real lens on on how we see the Vogue Met Gala through, through, you know, our creator's perspective. And it was tremendous for us. I mean, we had, first of all, again, I'll say this, like we didn't expect to have this much growth, let alone this much attention, but like 16.5 total live stream views, 54 million total minutes watched. I mean, that is an, that is an insane amount of success. I think what we're most proud of is that you know, not only people came to watch, but they stayed. Um, we had eleven global vogues and six U.S. titles um, that actually that actually distributed the live stream. Um, but I, you know, what I also think is just interesting is I think and I talked about this at the New Front last year. I think everyone's trying to figure out like what is the future of live? You know, how should we be thinking about it differently? Um, I think the concept that people are just sitting in their living room and not moving. Um, for four and a half hours is just not the right way to think about it, and so I think our strategy, um, which has really been more of a social strategy around live, is really what was so compelling.
0: It um, sounds almost when you make the broadcast comparison as if you guys are thinking of yourselves almost more like E than we would have thought as traditionally Conde Nast.
3: Well, it's ironic that you say that because E was the original um, team that was actually uh, you know providing that that live for uh, that live format for consumers. And so not that we're thinking, the the irony is like we're not really thinking like anyone else. We're just trying to look at this from our own perspective. Like, you know, what experience do we want to provide to our consumer? We have a totally different level of access just because it's the Vogue Met Gala. Um, And so I think we were able to provide a totally different type of content experience, number one. And then the format in which we did that on our own and operated in addition to our partner Twitter I think just created a totally different experience. How, um, and-
0: how does the monetization work here? I, I, I forgive me, I'm not the biggest uh, Anna Wintour fan. I, I didn't see it, but are there commercial breaks? I just want to understand how you make money off all these eyeballs.
3: So a couple things. So one is um, more of a authentic integration strategy. So the way that we you know interact with our consumer in all the ways that we create content around the Met. That, that's number one. Two. Definitely more of a, you know, traditional CPM model where you can, we're actually like, you know, inserting mid-roll and pre-roll like you would expect in any other bigger kind of digital video moment. Um, You know, for all intents and purposes, it's, you know, commercials, right? But um, you don't have to leave, you know, the commercial isn't taking over the experience and taking you away from the content. It's actually happening at the same time. Um, I also just think that like when we think about live experiences, people still think about it as like a TV experience, like literally the physical television. Um, and we just think about it as a content experience and like how you view that content in mobile versus how you may want to watch it, you know, once you get home uh, on your big screen is, you know, it, it's it's so much more fluid. Um, and the other thing I'll just add is that it's, when, when we think about live, it isn't like a one-way content experience where we're just like showing you something and you're receiving it. You know, when, when you think about the way that we're, you know, the mechanism in which we should, we, we shared our um, our content even with Twitter and on our owned and operated our consumers telling us in real time, like what they're liking, what they're not, they're commenting. And so it's, it's really a give and take. And I actually do think that's the, that's the future of live experiences. It has to be more of a multidimensional relationship with the audience that's watching.
0: So are we going to see you guys, do this to other big events in the year? Because if you've got a success, you got to repeat that.
3: Yeah, I mean, here's here's the interesting thing. There's one other kind of PSA stat. I mean, we had more viewers of the Met Gala red carpet than ABC had for the Oscars last year. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, first of all, what that should be telling you is that audiences want something different, right? Um, And what that all should should tell you is that we we kind of um, hit the nail on the head for this particular moment in time around the Met. We have another met coming up uh, in six months, which, by the way, doesn't usually happen. We usually have one met a year, right. first Monday in May. Don't forget. Um, so this was a unique moment in time that we had it in September. So we have another met coming up, um, and so you can you can be sure that you know this is kind of like our new Super Bowl, um, and that starts now. So uh, we had a ton of advertisers who were who partnered with us on this experience that are definitely um, kind of clamoring to be part of the next one. One would imagine why with that type of um, performance. Uh, Vanity Fair Red Carpet, um, you know, Vanity Fair Oscar party is a big event that we've been hosting for the, you know, for several years now. We also had announced on the new front stage back in in May uh, that we would be launching a live format for the red carpet experience as well. And so um, a lot of learnings from the Met and we will be applying many of those learnings to the red carpet experience for the Oscars. So it'll be really interesting to see how that all plays out. But I'm
0: excited. And it sounds great. I mean, we should point out sort of sort of, you know, let's pan back for a second on the Condé Nast entertainment uh, division and the video business. It's been around for 10 years. You're discussing one piece of it that I think is part of what has otherwise been known as a more short form strategy. All your brands putting out all sorts of uh, interesting short form series. And then there's this whole other piece of it, which is licensing of movies and TV shows to players like Netflix. Uh, So I'm just curious from, I mean, certainly from your advertising perspective, it's all about the short form game and this live stream stuff. How valuable is that relative to the licensing business? I'm just trying to get a sense of the scale of what you've got going in video.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the way that I would look at it is, and you know, we have a new president of Conde Nast Entertainment, Agnes Chu, who came over from Disney. She's awesome. Um, And I think that number one, you know, as, as she's shared many times is that our focus is to create a premium quality, um, to create premium quality content period. And whether that is in film and television or, you know, through a partnership with Netflix, like we wanna bring on the best of the best um, to engage with our audiences um, in ways that we think uh, only we can. And we've had a lot of success there in film and television. And I think that you know, Agnes brings a totally new and fresh um, line of thinking to that. And that's kind of like the halo and the magic. And so it's, it almost immediately you know, lends itself to how we think about digital video, or as you said, short form, um, because we have this you know, the, the, the mechanism in which we're approaching film and television. And, and I would compare, you know, I, I look at a company like Hulu Right. And, and they're kind of, they're a company that kind of does all from a, from, from that perspective, you know, they're making movies now they're making TV shows now. And, you know, obviously it's a, it's a different type of company because, um, of, of the way that they think about format and the way that they produce their content, but it isn't in terms of just the, the value prop in the content itself. And so for us, you know, kind of started in the reverse. We have a pretty robust kind of like digital video business. Now we also have like you know, brands that kind of bring this content to the consumer. Um, and there's a different relationship that I think some of our brands have with our consumers in that space that is, is pretty divine. But yeah, I mean, I would just say that like, how do they kind of come together is, you know, they're, they're, it's a different business model. Obviously one is more a direct to consumer model and the other is more of a, of an advertising model, but it starts with making the best possible content and, and building it for the consumer Um, And ultimately, if consumers really like it, then there's an opportunity to provide an opportunity for advertisers. So, you know, I think our digital video platform um, enables advertisers to participate. Right. And, uh, you know, film and television allows, um, you know, consumers to enjoy. and, And ultimately, I think it's it's a huge part of our future. I mean, this is when we think about the future of content. Right. You know, sight, sound and motion, you know, imagine people love to talk about Conde Nast, the magazine company, but ultimately this is how the majority of our consumers are engaging with
0: our content today. But we should point out that on the licensing side, that that uh, part of what uh, Agnes Chu is running, it's ideas that could be generated from magazine stories that come sure. into movies. I know, for instance, I think there's a movie coming to Netflix, uh, maybe later this year, uh, Escape from Spiderhead, which is yeah. based on an article that appeared in a Condé Nast publication. So uh, I guess, you know, the thing is, though, when I look over the past 10 years, I can't think of that many examples of Condé Nast material that has sort of broken out onto screens, big and small as TV shows and films. Are you happy with the progress you've got there? Is Agnes, you know, accelerating this? Uh, I'm just curious to get a sense of progress.
3: Yeah, I mean, she definitely brings different chops. I mean, Agnes is, she's I'm a baller Plus, so. Yeah. I mean, she's a baller. There's a reason why she's here. Mm-hmm. Um, am I, first of all, I'm super excited about our future in film and television. I think there's a huge opportunity there. And I think we have the right person to make that happen. And I think, uh, so that kind of, you know, speaks for itself, but we're in, we're, we're building, we're in building mode. Um, and I'm really proud of that. I think, you know, I think to your question about where some of our IP, comes from, or when we think about like ideas for movies that may come from magazine articles, I think the way that we think about it now, and and I've had this conversation with Anna several times is, you know, we used to be a magazine company. So all of the stories that we wrote, like the format was physical media, it was magazines. Now the format is, is, um, our content doesn't come from magazines anymore. Like we create content and we decide like what format we think that content's gonna make the most sense, right? So in many cases, you know, it, it, there is a physical media approach to it, but in other cases, a lot of our content is sitting in digital video that you wouldn't find in our magazines. If you think about the partnership we have with YouTube, as an example, um, you know, the, the content we create for Netflix is is not content you would find in, in any of the pages of our magazines, right? So I think that the opportunity for us is that, listen, we have the most, we are a creative company and we're probably one of the most influential IP companies in the world, the majority of the years that we've been in business, we focus that influence and that creative prescience in magazines, but in the last five years, we've extended that influence and that creativity and that talent to all of these new platforms. We produce content on 80 platforms worldwide. Now, the majority of our audiences are digital. We have 1 billion, I think it is digital views per month, um, globally. You know, when you talk about the range of audience consumption digitally, but it's not like a competition. It's not like, well, one is bad as one is good. It's just, it's different. You know, print is a, is a totally different experience. And so, um, I guess my point is when we think about IP and where it belongs, whether that's in a movie or, you know, in, in some, in some sort of like, you know, in in, through a video format experience, um, or even if it's, it's something we're producing for social you know, in partnership with Instagram, or maybe it's something that's going to live on our own and operate. It starts with like, what story do we want to tell? And then where do we want to tell it? And then how do we want to monetize that? And, and, you know, today we have the ability now to monetize that two ways, via the consumer and via the advertiser.
0: We're talking to Pam Druckerman, chief revenue officer at Condé Nast, and we'll be right back in a moment. Welcome back. Talking with Pam Druckerman of Condé Nast about all things uh, at the company. Uh, Another area that uh, Condé Nast Entertainment is in that I would assume uh, with your role in the advertising side of the business will be of increasing importance is podcasts. You just did a a hire of Chris Bannon from Stitcher to oversee that business. Uh, It's something where it's not like you're starting from scratch. You guys are already in this game what is sort of the next level you're trying to get at with this new hire
3: i mean i think it says a lot you know i think chris is highly reputable um he's just like i mean I, the amount of emails that i've received like oh like you guys are really getting into audio you guys hired chris it's like um you know i think he's a he's obviously a really talented guy i mean look these are early days for for con i mean we've 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 been in the digital video space and even in the TV and film space for much longer than we've been in the, you know, audio space. I mean, we've, 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 we've dabbled, we've had some success. Um, but I think we, we recognize that, again, going back to what I was saying earlier, that, you know, we have IP that consumers want and audio is a, a way that consumers are spending time with content. And this is an area where we feel like we just have permission. But, you know, it's a different format than bringing someone in with the expertise that I think can help um, take us to the next level there is, um, is actually extremely encouraging. And as a, as a commercial revenue lead, I'm actually very excited about it.
0: Okay. Let's hit another part of the business, commerce, where you guys are seeing more growth. I'm, I'm seeing uh, the stores that are attached to every dot-com associated with your brands. How meaningful is that business? I, I've, I've never you know, bought a product on a, on a publisher website. Um, but maybe I'm not seeing something.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, listen, if our CMO Deirdre Finley was here, she would say that, um, you know, it's a little bit more complex than that. And she's having a lot of success this year. I think our e-commerce business is up 42%. Um, Now, listen, again, beginning of the podcast, we were talking about consumer behavior changing and shifting and consumers spending more time online and buying online and, you know, affiliate has certainly been a big part of our strategy. And that didn't just start like five minutes ago. You know, we have a really different, you know, when I think about the role of Connie Nask brands and I think about Vogue, I think about GQ, I think about Wired, I think about AD, you know, consumers come to us for curation. They, they expect that we're going to help them kind of be a signal in the noise, right? And, and we're kind of the partner that creates wantedness and demand. And when I think about us as an omni media partner, I feel like that's the, the one area that is kind of hard to compete with. You know, how many other brands can motivate you to want to, you know, get on a plane and go stay in that hotel or motivate you to want to go to that restaurant or motivate you to, you know, buy that, um, you know, that beauty product with that much authority. And so I think we have more permission, to be honest with you, to succeed in e-commerce than probably any other competitor from an IP perspective. Or I would say we have we have a tremendous amount of... um, we have a lot of brand trust with the consumer already. I think the difference, though, is like, look, I think that the e-commerce business of the past was, you know, you create, or, or if you're, you know, if you're a publisher, you create content and you add an affiliate link, right? I think the future of e-commerce is quite different. I think some of the stuff that Deirdre is doing is really, really interesting and really, really innovative. And that's thinking about content and e-commerce at the same time. That's when you think about you know, we're kind of in the driver's seat. So how do you think about content in a way that like, what, what is what is a piece of content that should be viable versus a piece of content that shouldn't be? When do consumers just want to lean back and enjoy? And when do they actually want to buy, right? And so just getting more sophisticated around that, this is a huge part of our strategy. Our CEO, Roger Lynch, has been very focused on our direct-to-consumer um, business, but not just that, really focused on like building, continuing to dimensionalize and build out the relationship between our brands and our consumers. And e-commerce is a place where I feel like we just have a lot of uh, opportunity. And we're seeing that this year with the with the progress that I already mentioned. Uh,
0: another kind of, of commerce on site, of course, is the subscription business itself, where like a lot of publishing businesses, Conde Nast seems to have had sort of a, a pendulum over the past year or so with putting yeah. things behind the paywall, pulling them back. Um, where do things stand now is does does Roger have some sort of general philosophy at this point of what works in terms of paywall?
3: Well, I don't, I don't think we've put things on the paywall and pulled them back. I think all of our paywall strategies, so we have three brands behind a paywall right now. So the New Yorker, uh, Vanity Fair and Wired, um, and all of them have had a different, you know, approach and test mechanism around the meter, right? Like you, you, you have to kind of get to know your, 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 consumer and what they're willing to pay for and what they aren't. We've had a lot of success, uh, again, this year. Um, I think we've, you know, had double digit growth this year. I think we're up 16% year over year in total subscriptions. Um, again, and, and not to, not everything is, you know, again, we only have three brands right now, so we're still learning and we're still gathering data. And, you know, I think ultimately, um, there are certain brands that consumers are going to be willing to pay for. And for whatever it's worth, I mean, we always had consumers have always paid for our content. You know, they they bought our magazines on the newsstand or they paid for a subscription. So like paying for content as content isn't a new, like, concept for consumers. I think it's really more about um, how if you think about the digital space, the consumer expectation, and we all know we've talked about everyone loves to talk about the saturation of subscriptions and you know what are consumers how many more like you know. Uh, SVOD, uh subscriptions are consumers willing to, to pay for. And there's definitely a bubble that's, you know, either going to burst eventually, or is already bursting somewhat, but we're, we've had a lot of success with the New Yorker and we're seeing, you know, really encouraging results with, with Vanity Fair and Wired. And it certainly, um, you know, I think uh, I will tell you as the advertising lead. It is a great conversation to have with our advertisers, right? Because when you have a brand that consumers are willing to pay for, and by the way, willing to pay a premium for, um, I think that that is the type of audience that you should be, you know, really focused on from an advertising. But I'm a
0: little surprised by that because I would have made the presumption that advertisers would push back on any sort of barrier or gating that keeps you from maximizing the number of eyeballs. But you're saying advertisers will like a smaller group that's willing to pay they're more engaged is that Well thing? It's,
3: yeah i mean it's i don't think the goal i mean listen it depends on the advertiser but like the goal isn't as many people as i possibly can the goal is you know what can i get out of the people that i'm reaching return on investment roas people love to talk about that um, return on ad spend i think i think i think marketers are getting a lot more sophisticated they're spending a lot more on looking at things like e-commerce right looking at data like engagement how much time are consumers spending with the content? Um, they're looking at environment as obviously a really big uh, metric for them in terms of performance. And yeah, I mean, they're looking at, you know, the, t- you know, are all consumers created equal? Probably not in, in terms of the amount of time they're willing to spend with a piece of content or whether they're willing to pay for that piece of content. And so uh, gating of content is not the challenge for the marketer, it's the, it's the challenge for the publisher. Because we have to figure out what the best balance is between you know, how much content we're gating um, so that you know, the subscriber is getting something extra special versus you know, what pieces of content we're not gating um, so that the advertiser has an opportunity to par- be a part of it. So I think you know, we're getting that balance, um, but it's not going to be the same for all brands, by the way. There's not like a set formula yet for whatever it's worth.
0: Got it you know, I'd be remiss in not asking about the culture at Condé Nast, which looked fairly rocky in 2020, controversies at Teen Vogue and Bon Appetit, gave the suggestion that the company had some real work to do to ensure that a a diverse workplace where employees felt equally valued, regardless of ethnicity or gender or anything. Uh, Do you feel the company has progressed? Are you seeing the signs you're in that culture?
3: Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, we've, We've learned a lot over the past year and, you know, we're still in the process of applying those learnings. You know, we, we hired a global chief diversity officer. Um, We have put a framework in place that was an obvious um, that we didn't have prior to 2020. Um, I think that as an executive team, we're hyper-focused on, you know, the, culture and the community that we are building and that we're harnessing, um, you know, but yeah, I mean, look, we, we obviously had a lot of work to do. We still have a lot of work to do. I, I would be remiss to say that you know we haven't made progress, but you know, this isn't something that is going to change overnight. Um, and I don't think anyone can, can say that it's, it's like an every day, all day, you know, it's not a sometimes, uh, strategy, it has to be part of your end to end. And, and, you know, it's, um, it's been, I will say, you know, from, from my perspective, I think as a company, when you think about the future as a, as a culture curator, just, you know, in terms of like what we do for the consumer, um, it just put a real emphasis on the relationship we want to have with our employees at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, No, we're not like actualized. And by the way, like, I don't, I don't, you know, I think we have a lot of work to do, period, um, in the U.S., uh, you know, and uh, clearly there's, that was a long time coming, Um, but we're very focused on it and we're very committed to it. And, um, you know, more to come.
0: And let's not forget, of course, Condé Nast is very much a global company. And so I was curious if you could give me sort of the overseas picture, how much it contributes uh, to the overall revenue of the business. And it just seems like I'm reading and hearing a lot more about cooperation, global cooperation between what otherwise maybe years ago were completely separate operations that happen to have the same brand.
3: So, yeah, I mean, look, we were two separate companies. I mean, you know, Roger Lynch is our first global CEO, and some people don't know that. Um, We were an international company and we were a U.S. company. And so this is the first global team uh, on the executive level, you know, this is the first time we're operating as a global company. So that's number one. Um, Number two, you know, all of our countries contribute um, in different ways um, to the overall, you know, to our overall global revenue. But like, I think what's been really interesting is, you know, as someone who spent more time in our US market before I was uh, the global revenue lead is just seeing where, um, where you know there was obvious is the obvious is in, in all the ways that we were so different culturally. Um, but what was really interesting was to see ha- what our brands meant to our consumers in in those locals lo- local markets um, and how similar of a relationship Vogue US had um, with its customer and consumer as you know you know Vogue France has with its customer. And consumer and also just looking at a brand like GQ, and just seeing the impact um, and the differences that that brand has in in the, you know in many of the international markets where it sits versus you know GQ in the U.S. And so I think there's definitely more of a global community feeling now. There's an appreciation for like obviously art differences and not you know not being global doesn't necessarily mean being the same. It just means having more visibility and transparency into like what we are as a global company and what we mean to our various consumers in our local markets. And even how we think about now building the business. It's like, you know, when I think about our, our strategy as a global content company, you know, what does the future of our content look like? You know what I mean? And and, and and by the way, our number one job is to meet the consumer where they are. And I actually think we're unique in the fact that we are now, as I said earlier, doing that across 80 platforms and I think, you know, 31 markets. And that's significant to be able to say that, that we're not just, you know, influencing a consumer in the U S or influencing a consumer in China, that we're actually in all of these places. And so I think that actually gives us, um, I think that allows us to really get behind initiatives like sustainability from a global perspective or DNI from a global perspective. Um, And that's, a big part of, I think, our, I don't know, responsibility. Um, But now we have all these creatives that are connecting in ways that they just never had the ability to do before. Um, So it's been really, I don't know, it's been really exciting. Uh, It's definitively a big opportunity for our company. Um, It allows us to provide a lot more range to our global advertisers because you know, they have the ability to run a global campaign with Conde Nast in six markets across multiple touch points. Um, and that's just great to be able to provide that level of, of range you know, at a time when I don't know how many other companies can, can do that in quite the same way.
0: Well, speaking of other companies, we're having this conversation just a week or so after Barry Diller announced that he was going to acquire Meredith's Magazine Group for 2.7 billion. Curious to get your sense of, well, what, what does it mean to have another publisher out there with pretty massive scale out there to compete with? I'm sure you're going to be fighting with them for ad dollars. You know, what does it say about the publishing marketplace in general?
3: Well, I mean, look, I was having drinks with a friend last night, and we were just talking about this you know, this, this, this like moment in time, um, which we were just talking about this creator's economy. Right, like sure, unbelievable, sure. there's, listen, I mean, you, you, know, you know, like there's been so much focus over in the last five years on the platforms, right? Um, and, and there still is to a certain extent, but like, I think there's just more, and, and from a platform perspective, there's just more appreciation in terms of what's powering those platforms, whether that's user generated content or but the, the commonality is content and creativity. Um, and I think there's, you know, if you think about, you know, publishing companies, um, there's a lot of scarcity in terms of like what that creator's economy looks like. And, and that provides that, that just gives the value back to the creative or the, the power in so many ways back to the, the, the creatives itself, you know, and cause those are, that's really who's engaging with the consumer and growing audiences at the end of the day. So look, I think this is a really interesting moment, um, I think there's a renaissance happening when it comes to content creation um, and how that now connects to um, digital capabilities. When you think about what's going on with this, this merger, if you will, or this acquisition, if you will, Meredith's, Meredith's brands um, and the relationship that Meredith's brands have with its consumer now combined with the scale and digital capabilities of Dot .dash I mean that's an that's that I mean you said the word before I mean that's a that's you know going to make them quite competitive, um, but I like that I like that you know content companies are innovating and that's our job is to to find new and innovative ways to engage with the consumer and giving and giving you know and the fact that that those those worlds are coming together is great for the marketer, by the way, because there was a moment in time where they had to pick between the pa- platform and the publisher or, you know, working with, you know, just like wanting to have all these data capabilities, but like not really have any substance to connect to those data capabilities. So I think this is really great for the consumer, by the way, and really great for the advertiser. Um, and I think it's it's gonna make us all better. Um, and we're, you know, we're also, I think, in a really unique position to have all three. I mean, this is, you know, we just talked about this before, like our focus on e-commerce and our focus on, how we're dimensionalizing the relationship we have with our brands, with our consumer through digital subscriptions and how we're then productizing all of that back to the advertiser, I think just puts us in a unique space that I think makes us highly competitive. And it'll be really interesting to see how people define, you know, what does the sandbox look like, you know, in three years, right? Who are the big players um, in terms of the advertising market and, uh, you know, I think this is a really interesting you know, acquisition for all of those
0: reasons. Well, I am sure we'll not be the last in the space. Uh, so we'll have to see how 2021 continues to unfold. But Pam, I thank you for taking the time out today to walk me through all things Condé Nast and, and good luck uh, for the rest of the year. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you having me on. This has been another episode of Strictly Business. Tune in next week for another helping of scintillating conversation with media movers and shakers. And please make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear future episodes. Also, leave a review in Apple Podcasts and let us know
4: how we're doing.
1: your perfect home sweet home. You deserve a moment to
2: yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandys can give you that comforting pause.